Welcome to Quadel Ortho Science Bites. We're proud to sponsor this podcast as a continuing commitment to transform the power of diagnostics into a healthier future for all. Today, our topic is how are blood groups discovered? I am Tony Casina, and today I am joined by Dr. Jill Story. Jill is a professor at the Division of Hematology and Transfusion Medicine, Department of Laboratory Medicine, Lund University, Sweden, and responsible for the immunohematology laboratories within the Department of Clinical Immunology and Transfusion Medicine, Lund. She's an AABB National Blood Foundation scholar for her discovery of the genetic basis of the Bell blood group system, and her awards include the BBTS Margaret Kenwright and Rayson Sanger Awards, the AABB Sally Frank Award, and an ISBT Award for Services to Education. She has authored over 60 original papers, reviews, and textbooks, and given over 100 talks at international and national conferences and courses. She is a member of the editorial boards of Transfusion Medicine Reviews, Transfusion and Immunohematology and Section Editor for Vox Sanguinis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jill. Well, thanks, Tony. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to doing this podcast for some time. Great. Let's start with the basics. How many blood group systems and blood group antigens are there? Well, as recently as two weeks ago, the ISPT Working Party for Red Cell Immunogenetics and Blood Group Terminology had its uh, meeting, its annual meeting. So I can proudly report that we added a blood group system at that meeting, and so we now have 44 blood group systems. And there are 385 known blood group antigens, but the majority, 355 of that 385, are in those 44 blood group systems. So as you probably can do the math, that leaves 30 blood group antigens with no homes. And those are divided into uh, two series, one of low prevalence antigens and another of high prevalence antigens, and also a group of collections. And then recently, one of those collections was elevated to a blood group system. So, uh, yes, it's a continuing process. Great. Okay. so what challenges have researchers encountered throughout the years in trying to link blood groups to certain blood group systems? Well, that is a good question because there have been there've been a number of challenges. I think it's all all our discovery in blood group systems or in 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 sort of natural science research is all based on what techniques you have, and the, you know the the new generations of techniques bring with them new discoveries. And in the early days of blood group discovery, then you'll if you look at some of those papers, a lot of it's just looking at family studies and. Uh, trying to connect it. For, for a blood group antigen to be called a blood group antigen, it must have an, a human antibody that defines it. So that's been made in a patient or a pregnant woman. It must be shown to be inherited from, from one generation to the next and uh, be independent of the other blood group systems. So there's quite a lot of work that goes into them. So in the early days, it was it was literally doing a lot of family studies. And some of those early box sanguinous papers or transfusion papers you can see these very elaborate tests between the different generations. Now we can use a bit more modern techniques, but often the, the more, well, I wouldn't say more recently, but often the, the challenge or, or one of the major challenges is that they can be very rare phenotypes. You may be looking at the absence of a high frequency antigen or the presence of a low frequency antigen. And so getting enough material can be difficult um, to, to show inheritance and to show 
serologically that the, these antibodies are not related to other blood group systems. So it, it is challenging, uh, but it's more of a, it's more puzzle work of anything else. I think I've always enjoyed puzzles myself, and I think that that's really what attracts me to the whole field of of trying to identify new blood group antigens is is seeing how you can piece them together. Thank you. Since you have been involved and recognized in several publications for discovering new blood groups, uh, what triggers the idea that a new blood group might be in, in, involved uh, when you're doing serological work? Can you share how this process works? We can use serological fingerprinting, I like to call it. So you, you have you have your, your patient's um, plasma in front of you and it reacts with the whole panel and uh, you've been able to by testing the patient's red cells with antibodies to high prevalence antigens, for instance, or by testing your, your library of rare cells, you, you haven't been able to find a match for that particular um, plasma. So that can indicate that, that perhaps you have something new that you want to, you know, you want to see what, what, where, where it's going. You can do some serological testing with different enzymes to see if you can yeah, give some indication as to what sort of protein it might be carried on, and if maybe that fits a pattern that's uh, that really does tie it into one of the existing blood group systems. So that's the serological level, that's probably um, the, the way to go. But as I see the way forward with new blood group systems, I see three main paths. And, and the most common, I would say, is the discovery of the genetic basis of an already known antigen. And I can take from my own sort of own work the, the, uh, the example of VEL, but also JR and LAN, about 10 years ago, and then more recently, PEL and MAM and the ER antigens, that collection I talked about. But even there, there were some complete, completely new antigens um, discovered when they when they made their discovery. And so often, as, as I mentioned, it's the techniques that make the difference. And you can have blood or, or you can have red cells, for instance, that are VEL negative. And then so what, so what did we do in that particular case? And this was true for JR and LAN as well. Well, we took DNA from people that we knew were VEL negative and also from a couple of families that we had from, from northern Sweden in our case. And we took the, their DNA and then we, we tested them on a tech, using a technique called, called a single nucleotide um, SNP array, which really looked at different single nucleotide polymorphisms across the entire genome. And um, that, what that means is that we, we, we try to match their DNA for existing polymorphisms that were, that were found. And we were able to identify, uh, narrow our search really, not to a specific molecular basis, but to an area of a chromosome, in this case, chromosome one, and then narrow down our search by looking, okay, in that region where the SNP, this um, single nucleotide variant seems to be heavily represented in these people, what genes are present there? And then once we've narrowed down that that down to a couple of twelve four genes. Then we ask the question: Okay, which ones of the, which one of those genes encodes a protein on the red cell surface? Because we we knew that it had to be on the red cell, and uh, we knew it had to be a, a membrane protein. So then, once you have a potential candidate, and you may have you may have more than one candidate, then you can start sequencing that gene and seeing is there something in common in that gene to all the VEL negatives, for instance. And we were really lucky in that particular case because we found a, a, a single, we found a 17 base pair deletion that was common in all to all VEL negatives. But sometimes you're not so lucky and you, might, you may identify the gene, but then it's, it could be a giant gene with you know over 30 exons that you've got to sequence, or it could be that there are many different molecular bases um, 
JR and Lan are good examples of that, for instance. And you just have to methodically seek sequence through the gene. SNP array is a bit old fashioned now. Um, that was quite a long time ago. A lot of people have gone directly to uh, something called whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. So these are uh, techniques that fall under the umbrella of massively parallel sequencing, where you can take DNA from a couple of people that lack a high prevalence antigen. You could take, for example, PEL, which was um, discovered by the, the French group in Paris, or MAM, that was discovered by the Bristol group and, and ours, our group together. And what the Bristol group did with MAM, or the French group did with PEL, is that they took this DNA and, and performed whole exome sequencing. So in this case, you take the person's DNA, and then you just, using this massive parallel sequencing technique, you sequence all the genes in the human genome looking for something that might stand out. So it's still needle in a haystack work, but it's um, it with with you know with a sort of powerful computers to help you sort all the data. You can often again narrow it down to to one or two two genes that you can then work on. That's one of the parts. So, so you're looking for them for the genetic carrier of a already already known antigen or known phenotype. And then the second path is when you've perhaps in a lab finds a home for previously undescribed antigens. And uh, I was, I must say, I've been so impressed with the, the French group in Paris in uh, recent years. They're, they're particularly good at this. And they recently described a blood group called CL2, which is actually the carrier molecule. And there they had, in their freezer, they had plasma from five unrelated Moroccan women that contained antibodies to high prevalence antigen, and they were all mutually compatible. And then they're also compatible with red cells from a from a, a European uh, a person of European descent, but that lady's plasma was not compatible with their red cells. So it's, she, she reacted with their red cells. So it suggested that okay, we've got a we've got a shared protein perhaps, but there may be different molecular bases for that. So again, they they performed exome sequencing and, and identified CL two in that case, and were able to show that. All the Moroccan women had the same mutation, and the person from from Europe had another mutation that uh, she was in fact uh, lacked the whole protein. So it's it's very it's it's really fitting them together sort of piecemeal. And then the third category category when it took when discovering new antigens, I call emerging antigens, and they can come from from um, they can sort of sneak into our blood group catalogue from all sides. But one that I think is quite a good example is CD59. Which, as you as you know, is, is it's a complement regulatory protein. It's very very clinically um, clinically important protein. It's involved in a lot of different processes. But there was a a young child who was identified to be CD59 deficient who required transfusion, and she produced antibodies to CD59, which then gave it the status of of, of a blood blood group antigen because it fulfilled the cri criteria. It was antigen lacking from, from her cells. She had made antibodies to it, and it was definitely an inherited phenotype that was shown um, by testing DNA from her mum and mum and dad. So it's a, yeah, you can you can really discover them from, from many different uh, different ways. So there is a, the, the, the traditional one is having these antigens in your, or having these plasma samples in your freezer and then, you know, finding a gene that, that actually encodes it. That's the discovery bit of it, I think. Seems quite 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 wordy way of, of describing it, but there are these three tracks. Thank you, Joel. What role does demographics or geographic location play in these discoveries? 
Well, I think sometimes it plays no no role at all. You can find the phenotype distributed again across the world. Again, I use Vel all the time, but I mean that's because it's the one that's closest to my heart. But if I if we look at that particular phenotype, being Vel negative is more common um, where I am in Sweden, but there are examples of Vel negative people all over the world, and more commonly in Europe and also Africa very much less so in, in Asia, but they, they do occur. And that is, say, a single molecular background. And let's talk to, talk to you about um, CTL2. That was a case where you have the one antigen called RIF in the, in the CTL blood group system, that, that the RIF negative phenotype is only found or has only been found in, in, in people from Morocco or from Northern Africa. So there you have a very, yeah, very, very confined phenotype. Um, P1 PP1PK negative phenotype again has certain pockets where it's found uh, in the Amish group in 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 Pennsylvania and around there, um, where it can also be found found here in northern Sweden. And also there's a mutation that seems to have a sort of Pakistani um, sort of restriction. So the locale can have quite an, an important impact, and it can it can be just that it's um, it is a rare phenotype, and perhaps people are living in a remote area, and it's a, a small population that may be slightly more more inbred, um, but not always. Not always. Sometimes it's just um, there may have been other factors for why it's um, popped up, and there are other blood group systems like JR. JR is quite interesting because. Um, it's carried on ABCG2, which is a, one of these big transporters on the red cell membrane. But there you have a couple of mutations that seem to be restricted to a couple of to, to particular demographic group, for instance, in the Roma, Roma people in Europe, they have one particular mutation giving them giving rise to the JRA negative phenotype. In the Japanese, it's another. But then there are more than 20 or so other, other variants that um, cause the JR phenotype that are not don't show any particular uh, reason or, or, or group. It does mean, though, I think practically for us in the, in the lab, that if you want to screen for a particular blood group type, if it does belong to a particular group of people, then that's where you should be screening your blood donors and uh, not wasting, you know, sera or, or, or um, PCR or whatever you're using to screen. Okay, thanks. Um, what are the implications of discovering more and more blood groups? And what does this mean for the patients receiving transfusions when when these new blood groups happen to, to come up and be a problem? Well, I think that the implications of discovering more blood groups, I think it gives, they're twofold. I think if you can discover the background to a, a rare sample that you've had in your freezer, it means that you then have a standard much better chance of finding blood for that particular patient because you can, you know what you're looking at, you know the gene, you know the mutation. If it is found in a particular demographic, you can you can search the donors from that area. Um, but these are, these are extremely rare phenotypes, so perhaps you don't need a fridge full of, of blood of that type. But we know, from, for instance, from the MAM negative phenotype, where Nicole Thornton's group identified the molecular basis in, in 10 individuals in that paper. There's been one more found. That means there's 11 people that we know with that man negative phenotype. And we know of only one donor. Who, and and that, that person happens to be a group B. So you've got all the problems of not only finding blood for the, for the person, but also the barriers of ABO that we, we constantly um, yeah, are reminded of each day. So the implication, implication is, is really that with, with more and more knowledge, then we can perhaps help patients, find, find donors for, for patients. And, and I mean, 
I'm saying, just assuming here that um, all these um, antibodies are clinically significant, but in, in many cases, they really are. We really do have to face the problem of can we transfuse against an antibody because we don't have blood or you know, can we can we screen and find them among our donors? So by understanding that the the, the the basis or the carry behind the blood group phenotypes, it means that we can screen for more blood donors, it means we can have more in stock. And this has this has been shown to be very important in, in the long term when, when looking at the length of patient stay, delayed blood to a patient obviously means that they have to stay in hospital longer. They may be discharged with a slightly lower hemoglobin than is good for them because you can't find the blood. So there's there's a lot of important clinical reasons for for really taking the time to to understand what our blood groups are all about. Well, Jill, that's uh, been quite informative. To close out our conversation, how can transfusion medicine laboratories stay up to date on the latest discoveries? Well, I would love to say that's an easy, easy thing. Uh, and I think what we try to do with the working party uh, for, this, for red cell genetics and, and blood group terminology, we try to keep our web page updated on the ISPT website. And uh, it's, it's, it's all very manual work. So, I mean, it's, it's not, not that it's always up to date at the, um, straight after we've had a meeting. We also report our findings in a, a general report every two years. And I realise that that's not the most swift method of of doing things, but we are trying to be better at that too. And I think the ISPT is really putting a lot of, trying to put a lot more work into their own podcast so that if we do have a discovery, maybe we can get the the people that discover the blood group to describe it a bit more. And and that's been one one idea that's been thrown up. But I think, yes, the the website is the best source for for, for all the combined information. And there are tables on there that um, you can click on links to find, okay, well, how many blood group systems do we have? How many antigens do they have? And so on and so forth. And there's also people that you can contact if you need, if you need to, if you, you know, if you really feel like you'd like more information. And of course, PubMed is always good if you, you know, if you, if you have the sort of person that has the time and energy to scan the PubMed website or even Google Scholar will, will give you some information. But the, but the disadvantages, of course, for those sources is that you're not really getting as a single a single collected um, source of information. So I would follow the ISPT. They're the um, the working party is, is the organ that uh, assigns names and numbers to blood group systems and blood group antigens. And we in turn will try and be much better at get, um, keeping the information up to date. Well, thank you. Uh, could you share with us uh, what the most recent blood group system um, that you talked about that you discussed two weeks ago? Absolutely. Yeah, that's called the, the new blood group system is called ER, um, which I think will appeal to many people. And it was a it, uh, we elevated a collection, the ER collection, which was ERA, ERB and ER3, which I'm sure um, many people might might recognize. Uh, and this was after Dr. Vanu Crew identified and her colleagues identified that these antigens were carried on a molecule called Piazzo 1. And for those of you that are good at remembering who gives who got the Nobel Prize last year? The um, one of the two uh, Nobel Prize winners for medicine actually won a Nobel Prize for his discovery of um, the function of Piazzo one and Piazzo two on on cells of the body, and so it makes it very relevant. Um, some of these blood group discoveries that we are in discovering important proteins. So the 
blood group system is called ER. It's carried on Piazza 1. And in unraveling this blood group system, then Dr. Crew and her colleagues also identified two more antigens in the blood group system. So it went from being a collection of three blood group antigens to a blood group system with five and a blood group antigens. So um, very exciting work. And they did a tremendous amount of confirmatory testing to, to show that they, they generally knew what they were talking about. Very exciting. Thanks so much, Jill, for sharing that. Um, very interesting. Jill, I really want to thank you for taking the time with us today and giving us your experiences and insights on this fascinating topic. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Jill. And again, thank you so much for your time today on this podcast. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you. It's, it's been my pleasure, too, as always. Thank you for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Quidel Ortho Science Bites about how are blood groups discovered. Make sure to review the sessions within the podcast description for any reading materials that we've suggested. Based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with this pop quiz question. What might be a key indicator you are working with a new blood group? You can go back and listen again at any time, and please subscribe to Quidel Ortho Science Bites, brought to you by Quidel Ortho Corporation, where we are transforming the power of diagnostics into a healthier future for all. Take care, stay healthy, and safe. <laughs>